Good morning. You know what's interesting these last couple weeks? I have realized how much uh, opportunity we have to talk to other people and talk about lament. It was actually very interesting. I've talked to a couple of people about lament, and they've never even heard of it before. So that was, uh, I had some interesting conversation about that. So I'm excited about our series. But let me, let me pray to get us uh, into God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we just come before you, and as we look at Lamentations chapter 2, it's a very dark time for the nation of Israel, and it's a hard time, but yet there's still hope, and we will see that this next week. But Lord, as we, as we go through your word today, expose in our hearts different things that we need to lay before you, different things that we're worshiping, the time we're spending, the words we're saying, the things we're doing. Let us examine our hearts in light of your word. God, you are perfectly patient with us. And so, Lord, as we see what's here, help us to to personalize it and understand where we stand before God and that he has sent a son, a savior, in our stead. And so, Lord, we we ask that you would allow us to see what it means to lament. Because there's lots of reasons to lament in our world right now. We say all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys already said, hi, John. Someone said, hi, John. So my name's John, if if you're visiting. My name's John Mueller, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunlight Community Church. I'd like to welcome you here this morning uh, in person, but also online. We're in the second week of a series on the book of Lamentations. And unless you really like getting a deep dive into books of the Bible, this is not one that many people read. And last week you probably thought, I don't think I've ever read Lamentations. And many people skip over it because of where it's at in the Bible in the Old Testament. Uh, But it is a very important book, especially learning how to lament. If you have our app, you can click at the link at the top of the feed and you can get the notes. It's our digital bulletin. And then if you're watching online, you can put that on one device while you watch on another. Today we're going to cover Lamentations chapter 2. And Neil was up here last week and spoke on Lamentations chapter 1 and kind of gave an overview and an understanding of lament. The definition of lament he gave was a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. A passionate expression of grief or sorrow. And then he gave four elements of a lament. This is very important both this week and every week in the series. Four elements. Turn to God. So that's usually the hardest in those situations because we just get, we just, there's something going on in our hearts. Bring your complaint, ask boldly for help, and then choose to trust. Those are so important. He also gave an assignment. I think Neil thought he was teaching in here. You know, Neil's a teacher, so he's just like, I'm going to give an assignment for class, right? And so he gave an assignment to read four different chapters in Psalms and then write and pray your own lament. And some of you probably did that this last week, and some of you are like, I don't even know where to start. I'm not a poet, so I wrote my own lament. So no one can laugh during my lament, okay? It's not perfect. It's, it's not a poem exactly as you would see it. But it's, it's written from the heart about what's going on and following the same form of the lamentations. So I'm going to read that. It's a different way to do an introduction, but what I wrote was, 
God, we need you. Why have you allowed your people to scatter? Why did you allow the, the trifecta of disease, racial tension, and politics to come into the church and destroy the church? Why would you allow your church to become polarized about anything and everything? Why are you allowing the enemy of the church to win? You know, right about here is where I, I got a little bit more personal. And I said, why are you allowing your people to follow social media and news media more than your word? The destruction is evident. It's in our families. It's in our community. Why are you sitting on the sidelines as your people are lonely and struggling? Why did you allow your people to forget what's most important? Why? God, why? Help us, God. Help your people to be unified. Help, help us, God, to see the world as you do, not as anyone else does. Help us to not be destroyed by divisions caused by preferences. Help us, God, to be in the community with each other and in community with each other. Help us to see others as you see them. God, you are the one who saves sinners. God, you are the healer of souls and hearts. You are, God, you are the uniter and the sustainer. You are the one that grants us salvation. God, you are the ruler of the heavens and earth. God, we trust in your plan. Now that was turned out better than I thought it was going to turn out, because I'm not a poet. But I hope the process of writing a lament was helpful to grieve what's happening in your life. You know, a lot of us, and I myself included, there's times where we don't want to be vulnerable. And writing a lament is vulnerable. I just had to share that publicly. So that's a little bit, little bit hard even for me. But I, I would encourage you, if you wrote a lament, share it with someone in your family or someone else. So they know what's on your heart and what they can pray for you for. So as we move into chapter 2, Lamentations chapter 2 is probably, it's one of the dark points of the entire book. And so this week is a dark point and next week is the point where we dare to hope. And so as we go into the dire situation here that Israel is in, it's found itself in a worse situation and not better than even chapter 1. I know that's hard to believe. But part of the problem was God sent prophets for hundreds of years before to speak to the people, and they didn't listen. He sent people that were speaking on, on all through Israel about what was going to happen. So turn with me to Lamentations chapter 2. It's right after Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Jeremiah was the author of Lamentations. I know Neil had shared that last week. And I'm going to read the first 10 verses, and this is a mouthful, so if you can help me, just understand that these 10 verses, each verse starts with a different letter of the, the Hebrew alphabet. We don't see that in English, but essentially this is very much a poem, and it's a poem of, of grief about what's going on. Starting in verse 1, it says, How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He's not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he's broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He's brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. 
He's cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He's withdrawn from them his right hand. In the face of the enemy, he's burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He's bent his bow like an enemy, his right hand set like a foe. He's killed all who were delighted in our, delightful in our eyes, in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He's poured out his fury like fire. About right here, you're thinking I'm an old Baptist preacher, right? Do you notice that? Fury and fire and brimstone and everything. That's pretty intense. It gets worse, so I'm going to keep going. Verse 6, he's laid waste to his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and his fierce indignation has spurred king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He's delivered them into the hands of the enemy, the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of the festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out his measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit in the ground in silence, and they've thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. That was a lot. You guys didn't come today to be like, man, I just heard about the destruction of Israel, right? But there's something that God does here. God is clearly angry at his people. Clearly angry. He's cast down Israel's splendor. The footstool that he's mentioned is actually the Ark of the Covenant. That is, that is the, the most holy place in all of Israel. How could God forget where his footstool was? Where his presence was among Israel? And it's a simple answer. It's because Israel was proud and self-sufficient. They thought they could do everything without him. So God, what God did is brought them low and humiliated them. In verse 3, it says that God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12 tells us similar things. To Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom, God's kingdom, that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The na nation of Israel wasn't offering God acceptable worship. That's why we know if we build our own kingdom, God will destroy it. He's going to destroy it. That's what Israel was doing. It was just much like, you know, when, if you were in Sunday school as a child, you hear the story of the Tower of Babel, and the tower goes up, and then he confuses the languages because they were worshiping themselves. God is not going to allow you to worship yourself. He's a consuming fire. In verse 4 and 5, it even goes further. It says God's hand was against them, the same hand that was protecting them. When they went into the promised land in the Exodus, they walk into the promised land and everyone's around them, all these different enemies, and they defeat enemies that are way larger and greater and have better things than they do. But now it's the hand that's attacking them. And God lets them forget festivals and Sabbath. The palace and the temple are destroyed. The shattering of the temple that it describes here is a broken relationship. You've, you know, when someone says, you've shattered my dreams... There's a broken relationship there. There's a despair. It's a break 
here from heaven from earth, or heaven and earth. God's laying waste to everything. The things that they used to think they were worshiping God, he's getting rid of because they weren't. They weren't actually worshiping him. So it comes up to a simple principle. It's not just about if we're creating our own kingdom because you probably could argue that Israel was kind of halfway doing that. There's a simple principle. When our worship is half-hearted, God rejects it. He knows our hearts and our souls. Have you ever had a moment where you thought someone was half-hearted about something? Not sincere? Imagine how that feels upon all history and time. The God of the universe with his children and we raise up things that are just kind of, I'm just here because I feel like it, kind of maybe. I'm actually not here for him. He cares. And so the people do something different here. This is different than last week, and it's different than next week a little bit. Um, but the people cry out to God at this time very loudly. And I'm here to tell you something that I don't think many people realize. God has large enough shoulders that you can cry on them. And you know when you're angry? You ever, you ever get angry and you put your head in someone's chest but you're so angry that you just kind of just, I can't handle this. He's got a large enough chest that we can beat against in our moments of grief. And we have nothing left to give. Lamentations gives us verses to speak to this, to encourage us to cry out, against evil all over the world and protest evil. But God warned the people here about the evil that was happening in their midst. The prophet Amos, 200 years prior, prophesied about this very thing that was going to happen, which tells me something else. God gives us plenty of time to repent and turn to him. And then we get to verse 8. In verse 8, there's a continuation of the same theme. The wall of Jerusalem is destroyed. The gates are gone too. And, and unlike now, I mean, if someone messes with your fence, you want to, you know, you take it to small claims court or something. But back then, a wall was a sign of protection. It was a physical presence that protected you from the enemy. And God has taken that down so they have no protection left. And Israel would only see that as God's doing. It says... God stretched out the measuring line to destroy the wall. And what they would do in that time period is they would stretch out a line and kind of see if, if the, the, the fence or the wall was even. And there would be sections they would take off to put back to make sure it was even. And so when they're measuring this, when God's measuring it, he's like, this wall isn't stable. I'm taking it down is what he's doing. He's teaching them that they, what they've looked to for their protection is not truly their protection. And the most devastating part comes next. Right at the end here, they're in exile. Their rulers are gone. God stopped speaking to the prophets. The elders of Jerusalem are in mourning as the young women. When it says daughter of Zion, it's meaning Jerusalem in this chapter. And the next section of this chapter describes two shifts, and one of, one of those is that Jerusalem is, it goes from Jerusalem 
to describing Jerusalem to describing Jeremiah, and he's personalizing what's going on. But the other shift you're going to see is in who's kind of at fault here. There's, there's some things that happen in these next verses that are really important. I'm going to read verse 11 through 17 here. And verse 11 starts with Jeremiah. So read these words as if it's you. Or think of these words as if it's you. If, if the worst thing that ever happened in your life, and maybe you're not an emotional person, but the worst thing that's ever happened to you, or the biggest loss you've ever had, and read what he says here. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry out to their mothers, where is bread and wine, as they faint like a wounded man. In the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. But I can say to you, to what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken you to, that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions, they have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but that they have, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss and they gnash their teeth as they cry. We have swallowed her all this day we've longed for. Now we have it, we see it. And the Lord has done what he purposed. He carried out in his word which he commanded long ago. He's thrown down without pity and has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Anyone want to take a deep breath? I spent all week in this passage. I mean, this is heavy. The section starts with pure pain. The prophet Jeremiah is weeping and his stomach is upset. It's not, just, it's not just tears. It's like there's an uneasiness in his soul. Children are calling out to their mothers because they're starving. And he wants to comfort them. Parents have failed their children by not teaching them God's word. As parents, we have a responsibility to instill Christian spiritual values in our children. And verse 14 shows one of the sources of their destruction. I'm going to reread that. Verse 14, it says, Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquities to restore your fortunes, but have seen for your oracles that are false and misleading. The prophets are not doing their jobs. I mean, it's not a union job, okay? It's not a job that you can, you know, no offense to unions, but it's not like you don't have any guarantee as a prophet the prophets are going out there every day, and people are telling them and not listening to them. Jeremiah says, you know what, no one's ever going to listen to me, and no one did for years. They're just not doing their jobs. They're not calling out sin. They're giving false prophecies. And that's why this is so important. We are to worship God alone. There's no other place, there's no other thing to worship. As spiritual leaders, these prophets were leading people to other gods. What are our equivalents? Now, I put this, the God of blank. What, 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 what do you want to put in here? I thought of some things. 
media, all news outlets. Someone needs to say it. When we, when we worship whatever someone else says rather than looking into God's word about how we are concerned about others. Safety. As a parent, I always struggle with this. I want my kids to save, be safe. I mean, no one wants your kid breaking an arm, right? I want them to be safe. Security. And security comes in different ways, whether it's financial security, whether it's um, security in relationships, whether it's secu- we, we search out security, whether it's politics, whether it's our perception of what politics should be. It's clear to me that when Jesus came, they thought he was a political leader, and yet he was our savior, and that's different. Family. I confess there's times I put my family before, I think, my relationship with God, but again, that's, a, that's trying to figure that out. When our family keeps us from our relationship with God. People-pleasing. Does anyone like confrontation? You can raise your hand right now, and I'll give you $5. Okay, no, someone's going to do that just because I said that. No one likes confrontation. So we really, really want to please others. And we struggle with that, but on the other hand, what does God tell us? Go back to his word with conviction. Self-sufficiency. You can spend your whole life in church and be really self-sufficient. I've learned that. I myself have had times where I think I'm self-sufficient. You know what I've realized? Is the moments that are hardest in my life that I realize I'm not self-sufficient are the moments that God uses me the most. So anytime you think, I can do this on my own, you might fall down because you're worshiping self-sufficiency. And now, if we as pastors or leaders have led you this way, we've failed you. What was the result of them worshiping other gods? Israel was mocked by the peoples around them. You know what? This year's been so polarized that I know a lot of unbelievers are just laughing at the church because the church has just bought into all these different things. We've chased everything but God. Israel's enemies think they've won and destroyed them. Their wish has happened. It's God saying, or doing what he said he would to Israel. The prophet Amos said these words 200 years earlier. And this is a common quote. It says, it says let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Justice and then righteousness. Sometimes the discipline comes before the right action and the right heart. But no one wants the discipline. I've never had one of my kids say, man, dad, can you put me in timeout so next time I listen? Come on, guys. We're adults. We don't like that either. When we get a slap on the wrist or something happens or there's some warning, we don't like listening to that. But if you notice, justice and then righteousness, there's an order there. God did what he said, and you know what? He was patient. He waited 200 years. And I've said to myself when I read this, I thought, I don't want God to wait 200 years in my life to expose what I need to change. But then, on the other hand, I think selfishly we all think, I want God to wait 200 years because I won't be here, right? 
Because we don't want to wait for the justice. But even the prophets at that time were not, and the parents were not continuing to worship God, but they were chasing all these other gods. The last part of this chapter, and it's so important here, the last part of this chapter, they cry out to God. They cry out to God, and I, I think if you've read this chapter, as I think I need to say this. This isn't even the darkest moment. I feel like this is a dark moment, but it's not the darkest moment for these people. And yet they're still going to trust. And if you see, actually, at the end, they still feel that they're surrounded by their enemies. You know, sometimes it feels like life is a little bit like that. That there's a lot of things that sin does. We're surrounded by sin. And because we're surrounded by sin, we are surrounded by the enemy. And because we're surrounded by the enemy, whether it be Satan, our flesh, and how he uses things, I think, honestly, the only thing we can do is cry out to God. I don't know what else to do. And so, in verse 18, they start crying out to God. It says, Their heart cried to the Lord, a wall of the daughter of Zion. Let tears stream down like a torrent, day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water, like before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the street lie the young and old. My young women, my old, or my young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughter without pity. You summon them as if to a festival day. My terrors on every side. And in the day of anger of the Lord, no one escaped and survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Sounds like complete and total destruction. But I'm going to use a word, and I'm going to hope that at this point, from this point forward, both this week, that you will come next week. So commit to me that you're going to come next week. Okay? I commit. Okay, good. We're all good. Because next week, we're going to see what happens as a result of this total destruction. The story doesn't end here. There's a but yet moment that changes things. But right here, there's something that we need to learn. This is an emotional, tearful prayer to the Lord. God doesn't expect us to be robots when we're hurting. Sometimes other people do. Maybe we grew up in a family where tears weren't shed. He doesn't expect us to be robots here. Crying out to God in prayer, they're lifting their hands and they're asking a question. How could you do this? How could this happen? That's a question we ask whenever things don't go our way. But it's also the question we should be asking when we're hurting. 
The leaders are shown responsible for the destruction. The, the leaders led them this way. The leaders led them to be destroyed. Now this generation, the young women and men are being destroyed. And God's judgment brings tears. Some reflections I had on this last section are as simple as this. You don't have to hold back your tears and emotion from the Lord. But even if you don't, you need to be able to process. As a student of human behavior, I know that when someone's crying, you can't understand half of what they're saying, whether they're an adult or a child. Another thing is, when they're crying, there's this outgrowth of emotion that doesn't allow us to understand and receive information very well. And so we do need to be able to still process. But most importantly, and this is really the central idea of this last section, is godly grief leads to repentance. There's different types of grief. And I, I was told that it this way, as, both as a child and as an adult, there's one type of grief. You ever get caught doing something? Yeah? There's a grief there, but you were only grieving because you got caught. What God's asking for is grief. Because we've sinned, it doesn't matter if anyone knows we've done it. He's asking for grief because he's saying our response to our sin should be repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It's not that we're not overcome with emotion in our repentance, but if we're grieved by our sin in worship of other gods, that's what's most important. That's what we should be thinking about. If you look at this, I just, I just read 22 verses today. I don't usually read 22 verses on a Sunday morning in the same passage. And What do you think the central theme was here? Israel was far from God. But they thought they were close to him because they were listening to the wrong sources. They were following the rituals. Anyone ever follow rituals? If you woke up with an alarm cock, you just followed a ritual. It's not that rituals are wrong. It's that they were going to God and that's all they gave him. I'm doing the same old, same old. I'm not changing anything I'm doing. You come in, you listen to the sermon, you go out to lunch afterwards, and you go home. It's the same old, same old. You're only here for one hour a week, right? How many hours this week are you listening to something besides uh, sermons, besides reading God's Word, other sources of information? My phone has this thing called screen time. Oh, it drives me nuts. Because it tells me when I've been in each app and how long and everything all week. And then I get a report at the end of the week. It's like a grade. But the reality is, how much time am I spending on other things? How much time are we spending on other things? When, when we just do the rituals, we're not going to get results. Simple as that. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. And so if we're just doing rituals, then we're going to get the same results. Which is not much of anything. To have godly grief, we have to give God, not just our heart, but our soul and our mind. 
Because the greatest commandment is from Matthew 22. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Some of you walked in today and didn't expect what I was going to say. And you know what? I've realized, especially with preaching, is there's times where things do need to be heavy and you need to let people think about what's been said. So I do have some questions that come to mind. And I have these questions that I genuinely think we all need to ask ourselves. They're questions that I've been asking myself this week. Because Israel was kind of building their own kingdom. So are you building your own kingdom or serving in God's? You'll know. Maybe, maybe God brings conviction about one thing or another. What gods, small g gods, have led you away from worshiping God alone? I'll tell you a God I didn't mention earlier that I think we worship. And I would argue that every single person in this room is worshipped at some point in their life. It's God of fear. Fear that God won't follow through. He won't complete his promises in our life. He won't do what he said he's done. And yet he's always done what he said he's done. And that fear comes from the fact that we look in our world and we get a glimpse of other people that have not followed through. And we measure God by what we see rather than what he says he is. So what gods have led you away from worshiping God alone? And last, where is your heart? There's there's two potential options with sin in our lives. Are you grieved by your sin? Or are you numb to your sin? Are you grieved by your sin? Or are you numb to your sin? I always end with so what, but honestly, that's the so what. I've got, a, I've got another slide with these points on it, but sometimes we just have a, have a time where we just spend time with the Lord, with God. If we're going to build our own kingdom, God's going to destroy it. Why does everyone try to build their own kingdom? Well, it's been since Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. Because we want what we want, but yet God is and always will be who he says he is. When our worship is half-hearted, God rejects it. Have you ever had someone say to you, you don't really mean that? Usually it's someone that's pretty confrontational that's willing to say that. But I can just imagine God being like, you don't really mean that. I don't want part of you. I want all of you. Because I love you. That's why we're to worship God alone. And the only way to worship God alone is actually look at ourselves and realize what other things we've been chasing. You know, I I lamented this morning, and my lament was kind of broad. But maybe you have a very specific thing to lament. Maybe there's something that's between you and God right now that you need. You need time with him. 
don't leave here without making that time. Whoever you came with, spend that time with him because godly grief leads to repentance. Repentance is not what the what we normally think it is. Repentance is literally going the opposite direction. And maybe God needs your complete vulnerability because he's the only safe place you have right now. I'm going to I'm going to close in prayer. And I'll I'll be up here afterwards. But I think this is something that I know we need to hear as a church. There is hope when we pursue God. There's hope. Hope in the most dire of circumstances, no matter how good, how bad we think the world is. But the reality is that God is still there, still with us, still guiding us. And most of all, he loves us and receives us when we have been building our own kingdom, when we have been worshiping other gods, when we're not grieved by our sin. He's still there. So today, make a choice on those three things. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and much like like things were shattered, the temple was shattered, our hearts are shattered or broken before you, Lord, and we ask that you would put them back together. Broken for different reasons because different things have happened to us, different experiences, different hurts, different pains. God, I pray that anyone in this room that feels distant to you, Lord, I pray that you would allow them to see that your presence is as close as possibly can be. God, don't forget us in the most dire of circumstances. God, we cry out to you and we trust you because you are the God of the universe with the ultimate power. You love us. And so no matter what has happened to us, we rest in the promise of both eternal life, but Lord, we rest in the promises of joy and trials. We rest in the promise of of your word and how it says that you sent a savior, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for the guilt that we feel, the guilt that we take on. God, help us to repent of our sin. Help us to not build our kingdom, but to be a part of building yours. God, help us to chase after you and worship you alone. That is all you're asking for. In Jesus' name, amen.